What if I told you you could break free from calorie counting and dieting forever? Welcome to the Perfect Metabolism Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Vance. I'm a nutritionist, yoga instructor, and author of the book, The Perfect Metabolism Plan. I've been focused on metabolism optimization for over a decade, and I'm here to tell you that contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't have to be all downhill after we hit 40. So it's the start of a new year, and many of us are ready to get back on track after all the holiday indulgences. You might even be considering the dreaded four-letter word. Yeah, I'm talking about diet. If you hate diets, you're not alone because they make us miserable and they don't work. I always say trying to lose weight by dieting is like putting a broken arm in a sling without resetting it first. Just like the broken arm needs to be reset, so does the metabolism. So before you jump back on that diet train again, stick around for this very first episode of the Perfect Metabolism Podcast. In this episode, I explain why diets don't work and set you up for weight gain, actually, in the long run. I also talk about how your scale could be lying to you, why a calorie isn't really just a calorie, and I'll give you five simple, actionable tips to reset your metabolism. Yes, at any age. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as medical advice. Talk to your doctor if you have questions about how this information applies to you. So just know, if you've tried to diet with no success, you didn't fail. Your diet failed you because diets don't work. You can't get good results from bad information. When I first became a nutritionist and I was getting ready to host my first group program, a nagging thought kept bothering me. People don't want to just clean up their diet for three weeks and go right back to where they were before. They want to change their lives and health for the better, for good. That's when I knew that I had to focus on the metabolism as the key to lasting weight loss, vibrant health. The cool thing I discovered along the way is when you do that, the metabolism isn't just about our weight. It also heals many other chronic health conditions. The thing is about dieting, if you diet without fixing the underlying metabolism, you're actually likely to gain weight in the long run. And that messes up our metabolism even more. You see, when you diet without correcting that underlying metabolism, we tend to lose muscle. Losing muscle over time will slow the metabolism down. If we gain that weight that we lost back, we're gaining that lost muscle back as fat. So yo-yo dieting can make us fatter in the long run. That's why the real secret is to just stop the dieting and focus on the metabolism. So let's start at the very top. First and foremost, we need to get our goal right. We got to know what our target is. So when we say we want to lose weight, what we really mean is we want to lose excess fat or adipose tissue and gain or at least preserve our muscle mass. So essentially that means we want to improve our body composition. Now muscle weighs more than fat. So anyone that's ever started a weightlifting program knows that they might gain weight while they're dropping a pant size. That's how our scale can lie to us. Our weight really doesn't take into consideration how much of our, what, what that number is, is our adipose tissue, our, our fatty tissue, how much is lean, how much of it is our bone density, how much it is water we're carrying, 
So instead of a standard scale that just tells us our weight, one thing you could do is consider getting one that will measure, measure your body composition. I recently got one and they're super cool. Everyone in my family got on it and wanted to know what their numbers were. And that you download a free app onto your phone and in addition to your weight, the body composition scale is going to give you your BMI, your body fat percentage, your muscle mass, your bone mass, your water weight, and it gives you a visceral fat score. Visceral fat is the fat that we're carrying around our midsection. Visceral fat is a more dangerous area to carry fat. These uh, body composition apps will also keep track of your previous numbers so you can see your progress over time. I actually really wish I'd had this body composition app a long time ago because I'll tell you what, my numbers during COVID were probably really different than they are now. So the cool thing is these devices, they used to be really expensive. They're now very surprisingly affordable. If you go down to the show comments and, and the download I've got below, I've linked to the one that I bought on Amazon. I paid less than 30 bucks for it. Super cool. The gold standard really for assessing body composition is a DEXA scan. That's something your doctor would need to order for you. It's commonly done to check bone density and it's gonna give you a really good bone density picture. And it's also gonna show you where you're storing your fat, your body fat percentage. I've had that done as well, and it's fascinating and also a little disturbing because you actually get that visual, you get that picture of your body and where that fat is and where your um, lean tissue is. And the fact that you're laying down when they do the picture, you know, makes it look a little worse than it is. Another very, it's probably the simplest and least expensive way to assess your body composition is with a $3 tape measure. So what you do is you just want to measure your waist and your hip circumference. You divide your waist number by your hip number. If your ratio is 0.85 or higher for women or 0.9 or higher for men, that is considered higher risk for metabolic diseases like heart disease and diabetes. The reason this ratio is important is because where we carry our weight matters. Midsection weight is associated with higher disease risk than weight, say lower in the body and the butt and the legs. It's sometimes referred to that as that apple body type versus say the pear body type. The apple body type is more highly correlated with metabolic diseases. And a regular scale is not going to be able to tell you that. Um, it's not going to tell you where you're carrying your fat, but doing that uh, hip to waist ratio is going to give you that number. And it's interesting, even people who appear to be a normal weight but are carrying excess visceral fat are higher in disease risk. One very surprising study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine found that normal weight people who carried excess midsection weight had the highest risk of dying early, even more so than obese individuals. So that visceral score is a really important number to know. Um, the other thing you can do is take those hip and waist ratios and your weight and put them into an online calculator. I've got a link to it in the show notes below as well. And you just put that those measurements and your waist, weight and it'll give you your body fat percentage. And I've when I had my DEXA scan done, I did a uh, did the body composition calculator online. It was very very close to my DEXA scan. 
So to sum you know this up, just know our regular scale, it's going to give us some information, but it's really not giving us the big picture. It's not telling us where we're storing our fat. It's not telling us really what our body composition is. And so we want to go that one step further to really get a quality body composition. So the next thing I want to talk about is what are the problem with diets? Really, one, one of the problems, the biggest problems, is it's based on an old, outdated concept, calorie counting. Calorie counting, the thing is, it makes sense mathematically. Simply eat fewer calories than you burn, and you'll create a calorie deficit, and you'll lose weight. Duh. So obvious, right? So why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because our bodies aren't calculators. And not all calories are truly created equal. Think about this. 100 calories of candy is very different metabolically than 100 calories of, say, almonds. The candy, you eat the candy, it spikes your blood sugar high very quickly. And that, there's nothing to keep that blood sugar stable, so it's followed by a crash. What that does is... It stimulates our sweet tooth and hunger. We get tired and grumpy when we crash. So in the end, we consume more. We reach for more of that candy to give us that spike. And then we have another crash. I call that being on the sugar roller coaster. The almonds, on the other hand, deliver energy slower and longer. It fills us up. It makes us more satisfied. You're not going to get the big high and crash. Remember those 100 calorie snack packs? They are one of my biggest pet peeves. They were all the rage in like the early 2000s. I'm pretty sure you can still buy them at the grocery store. But what happens after you eat one of those 100 calorie pack of, say, Oreo thins? Yep, 30 minutes later, your blood sugar is crashed, you're hungry again, and before you know it, you've, well, you've polished off three more of those little 100 calorie snack packs, right? So the 100-calorie snack pack turned into 400 calories and not the good kind, the kind that's basically devoid of nutrition, spikes and crashes your blood sugar. So when we're consuming food or drinks that give us those sugar highs and lows, it puts us on the sugar roller coaster. And a roller coaster is fun for one ride, but being on it all day long is exhausting. What happens when we're on the sugar roller coaster for a long time, like say years, is we develop something called insulin resistance. This is probably the number one reason for the metabolism to become sluggish as we get older. The majority of the population, at least half of the population of adults in this country, has some degree of insulin resistance, which means the body's in fat storage mode and it does not want to burn fat. So you, you, when we're in fat storage mode and not in fat burning mode, guess where the majority of that fat gets stored? Right, our midsection. So what is insulin resistance exactly? So insulin's a hormone. After we eat sugar or carbs, insulin's job is to get that sugar out of the bloodstream and deliver it to our cells for energy. When we have insulin resistance, that process is not working well. So our blood sugar will stay elevated longer and our cells will be starved of the energy they need because the insulin's not getting the job done. The body has to release more and more insulin to get that job done. This is a problem. A good analogy I like to use to explain this issue is say you're in a movie theater and a fire alarm goes off. 
It's a particularly good analogy because high blood sugar is like a fire within the body because it damages blood vessels, nerves, immune system, the liver, more. Brain health. Um, so in this analogy, let's say there's 150 people inside the theater and there are three exit doors. The fire alarm goes off. If those exit doors are working, you know, pretty easily, 50 people can file out of those doors and get to safety. That can be a pretty orderly process. But what if a couple of those doors are stuck? Sometimes they're stuck. Sometimes they let people through. That's kind of like what insulin resistance is like. It's harder to get all those 150 people out because people will be milling about and trying to find a working door. It takes longer. There could be casualties. The casualties of poorly controlled blood sugar are things like nerve damage, brain fog, fatigue, pain, and increased risk of almost every non-communicable disease. So insulin also is a fat storage hormone. So insulin resistance puts our body into that fat storage mode, and it loves to put that fat right in our midsection. So as you can see, not only are calories not processed exactly the same, but someone with insulin resistance is going to process that 100-calorie snack pack differently than someone who is insulin sensitive, whose insulin's working well. It's going to take them longer to get the sugar out of the bloodstream and into the cells. They'll have to release more insulin to get the job done. It's estimated, again, that about half the population has some degree of insulin resistance at least. So, you know that friend of yours that can like eat a piece of cake and doesn't gain weight probably has really good insulin sensitivity so this is an important point to know insulin resistance makes our metabolism so resistant to fat burning that if we suddenly go on a diet without correcting that insulin issue the body will actually opt it's so resistant to fat burning it will opt to break down muscle before it goes after the stored fat that's why a lot of times the physical manifestation of advanced insulin resistance is often that big belly because we're storing fat in our belly and skinny arms and legs. So we're breaking down muscle. There's muscle wasting. It contributes to muscle wasting. We're going to talk about muscle in a second, how important it is. So that's why I also don't recommend people jump right into intermittent fasting without correcting the blood sugar issue. I'm going to do an episode on intermittent fasting soon. So definitely, you know, come back and listen to that. So I know that's a lot of bad news. No, it's not all gloom and doom. Far, far, far from it. So let's get into the good news. It is possible to become more insulin sensitive and get our metabolism back into fat burning mode at any age. I promise. I've helped lots of people do it. I've done it myself as well. So here are five things you can do right away. Number one, ditch the calorie counting. Forget about it. Let's not worry so much about the calories. You know, calories count. I mean, if you're looking at a menu when you're going out to eat and you see something that has like 5,000 calories or 3,000 calories, just know that's, that's too much energy for one meal. But Instead of calories, what I'd rather have you do is focus on eating for blood sugar stability. We got to get off that sugar roller coaster and avoid those big spikes and crashes. And so the foods we eat should provide longer lasting energy, stable blood sugar, and a feeling of satiety or we're satisfied from our food, right? And we don't want our food to cause us to crave more sugar. 
So I have this simple rule called the perfect metabolism rule of three, which is every time you eat, you want to make sure you have at least one or more of the following macronutrients, healthy fat, protein, and or fiber. There are some foods that have all three of those things. I call those magic three foods. Something like chia seeds has healthy fat, protein, and fiber. Nuts have fat, protein, and fiber. So foods that have healthy fat, protein, and or fiber keep our blood sugar more stable. They deliver slower burn energy, and they keep us fuller longer and keep us off that dreaded sugar roller coaster. The sugar roller coaster not only contributes to insulin resistance, but it makes us tired, you you know, you're grumpy, you're moody, um, you're hungrier. So instead of, you know, having, say, a glass of apple juice, eat the whole apple. Even better, put a little, you know, have a couple almonds with it or put a little almond butter on it. The apple has the fiber, which will fill you up and slow the blood sugar spike, whereas the apple juice will just spike your blood sugar. So a better snack than a 100-calorie pack of Oreos would be a handful of nuts. I've got a free download that I've put together for you guys. It details this and some other tips from this podcast. So just click on the link below and you can download it. I've also got some recipes on there as well of some good breakfasts. So that's my tip number two. Start your number your day right. You know, the, the saying breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Well, studies show that what we eat for breakfast affects our blood sugar levels until dinner. There was a study done with diabetic men that found if they had a high glycemic breakfast, high glycemic means spikes your blood sugar, it impacted their blood sugar all the way to dinner. So for example, grabbing a blueberry muffin and a grande mocha latte is not only going to set you back, I don't know, 12, 15 bucks, but it's going to start your day with more added sugar than you should have in three days. The American Heart Association recommends that uh, women have no more than six teaspoons of added sugar a day. Men should have no more than nine. I mean, a mocha latte has like 10 or 11 just in and of itself. So when you have that high glycemic breakfast, what it does is it spikes your blood sugar. And, you know, that 10 a.m. slump when you need a snack or another coffee or something, you probably won't need it if you have a plate of eggs with some avocado slices. So my tip number two is to eat a low-carb breakfast. This means swapping the cereal for eggs or swapping your fat-free sweetened yogurt for unsweetened full-fat yogurt. And sure, grab a few berries, top it. Even if you put a small drizzle of honey, you're going to have a more stabilizing breakfast than you would with that fat-free sweetened yogurt. You know, drink your coffee unsweetened. Drinking your sugar is one of the worst ways to get sugar. Terrible. So learn to like your coffee unsweetened, or if you like it sweetened, you could try using just a little touch of monk fruit, um, which is a natural alternative. You never want to use the chemical sweeteners. Those are terrible for our metabolism and health. And if you like muffins, I've got a recipe for uh, flax muffins. They're grain-free, fiber-rich, contain healthy blood sugar-leveling fats, and they're going to give you longer-lasting energy and won't spike your cravings like regular muffins. That recipe is included in that free handout that I've got down below. You might be wondering, well, what about skipping breakfast and intermittent fasting? Again, I'm going to do another episode focused on that because there is a lot of good data and it can work for many people. But if you're in active insulin resistance, 
I really recommend correcting that first. Again, like a low-carb breakfast is a great way to get the body into that mode of getting off the sugar roller coaster. Because again, if you're skipping meals, first of all, you're going to be really, really miserable trying to intermittent fast if your blood sugar is not stable. Um, So that's something to think about. Start with that low-carb breakfast for a few weeks and really notice the difference you feel. Um, Another question I get a lot about breakfast is what about oatmeal? That has fiber, right? It's a good question because it really depends. This is, again, an example of how, you know, everybody's a little bit different. So it depends on the type of oats. So are you doing the quick oats or the whole oats? How they're prepared and your own personal metabolic response to them first. You want to, if you are going to do oats, you don't want to get the quick oats those are way higher glycemic than the whole oats. The quick oats will spike your blood sugar higher. So skip those. But even whole oats themselves can be high glycemic in some people, causing that spike and crash. Um, And then how are they prepared? Um, Are they doused in syrup or sugar? One way that I've noticed that um, oats are less uh, lower glycemic is if you do the overnight oats where they're soaked instead of cooked. So that is one way to do it is soak your overnight oats, not cooking them, using the whole oats and not adding a bunch of maple syrup or something like that to them. Um, But really, this is an example of where I recommend that you try to wear a continuous glucose monitor. That's really the only way to know how your body is handling a carbohydrate real time, um, like oats. Some people will have a spike and crash from oats, even prepared properly, and then other people, it'll, you know, give them lasting energy. The other way you can also tell is, do I need to eat something again in like an hour? Am I grumpy? Am I tired? Um, So that's another way to know like how you're, what you're eating is stabilizing your blood sugar. I'll talk a little bit about continuous glucose monitors in a minute, but One other tip, we're going into tip number three, is if you do decide to oats, make sure you add cinnamon. Cinnamon is tip number three. Cinnamon is actually a truly amazing metabolic superfood. It's not super expensive. It's a wonderful spice made from inner bark of trees, and it can improve your blood glucose levels by increasing your insulin sensitivity. It also is really interesting. It causes a dilation of your blood vessels, which can improve blood flow and reduce blood pressure. Anytime you get yourself off the blood sugar roller coaster, your blood pressure is going to improve. They're very highly correlated. In fact, blood pressure is more highly correlated to poor blood sugar management than it is at all to salt. And that's the other great thing about stabilizing your blood sugar. You can have a little bit more salt and it won't affect you as much. Um, In fact, people with very low blood pressure need to be kind of careful with cinnamon because it can lower it too much. I'm one of those people I have really low blood pressure. And if I eat too much cinnamon, cinnamon, I can feel it. Cinnamon also amazingly reduces triglycerides, total cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol. Cinnamase is an active compound in cinnamon that may have an inhibitory effect on the enzyme responsible for producing cholesterol. And the flavonoids in cinnamon, which are antioxidants, help to lower inflammation. Now, this is an important distinction. Realize that most products labeled cinnamon are actually cassia, which is a cheaper form. And cassia actually contains something called coumarin, which while generally is safe in small amounts, it can be toxic to the liver and higher doses are taken consistently. Ceylon cinnamon, C-E-Y-L-O-N, 
on the other hand, also known as Sri Lankan, is what's considered actually true cinnamon. It's a little bit more expensive. It's also milder and a little bit lighter in color. And it's just the superior form because it only has very trace amounts of that coumarin. So if you are consuming cinnamon regularly, you want to just opt for Ceylon, C-E-Y-L-O-N. Now, the other thing is how much do you want to get? You want to shoot for half a teaspoon of cinnamon a day if you want to get that therapeutic effect. That's the amount that's shown to have therapeutic effects on blood sugar and blood pressure. In one study, volunteers ate from one to six grams of cinnamon for 40 days or just over a month. One gram of cinnamon is about a half a teaspoon. And the researchers found that cinnamon cut cholesterol by about 18% and blood sugar levels by 24%. I mean, if Big Pharma could put a label on cinnamon, it'd, it'd be like a blockbuster drug. Cinnamon actually is also available in supplement form. You can buy cinnamon supplements. You're going to find even some multivitamins that um, are metabolically focused will have some cinnamon in them as well. But again, if you're supplementing cinnamon, try and look for Ceylon because, again, you're going to get a higher dose. So my fourth tip to help control blood sugar is probably the easiest tip ever. It doesn't cost a single cent. You can do it immediately. And it's to take short walks after meals. It's a very, it's so easy, but it's so powerful. Multiple studies have that shown taken, taking a walk after your meal helps to measurably reduce your blood sugar spikes. It improves insulin sensitivity for hours. And as a bonus, it also aids in the digestion process. I always tell people who have reflux, get up and take a short walk after your meal and see if that helps because what it's going to do is it's going to help encourage that peristalsis or the movement down. And taking a walk outside generally can benefit our mood as well. So a good goal to shoot for would be like a 10 to 15 minute walk within the first hour after dinner. But if you can't fit in that amount, new research shows that as little as a two minute, two minutes, I know, two-minute walk can be beneficial. I mean, that's less than one song on your playlist. So give that a try. If you can only do one meal a day, do it. If you can do all three of your meals a day, even better. And I always say, if you can't get out to a walk, maybe it's like 10 degrees below zero, um, get up and be the person that does the dishes. The person in the house that does that is the healthier person than the person that goes and sits on the couch. So Be a helpful host and do the dishes if you can't go for the walk. And my final tip is probably as important as the blood sugar tips is to build muscle. This is so important. Muscle is critical to a healthy metabolism and longevity as we age. And the thing is, muscle mass decreases approximately 3 to 8% per decade after the age of 30. And this only accelerates after the age of 60. Again, as mentioned, muscle is more metabolically active than fat. Like when you're asleep, the higher percentage of muscle you have, the more you're burning calories while you sleep, right? And so losing muscle slows down the metabolism. We're losing muscle after age 30 every decade and much more so after 60. This is one reason why the metabolism can slow down as we age. You know, that reputation for, you know, the breaks coming down on the metabolism when we turn a certain age This is a big reason why, this and blood sugar leveling. Um, Muscle is 
very important as we get older for so many reasons, even beyond metabolism. It supports our skeleton. When we have good, strong muscle mass, even if we take a fall, even if we have kind of fragile bones, it's going to be protective to our, our bones. We're less prone to breaking a bone. It is so important to protect our bone density as we get older. Breaking a bone, especially your hip after age 50, really raises our risk of mortality. So the other cool thing is, is when we're building muscle, we're also building our bones. Weight-bearing activities puts stress on our muscles to make them stronger. That stress is also strengthening our bones. Muscle mass improves our insulin sensitivity. Aha, so it helps us process carbs better. It also boosts our immunity. This is a really interesting one. According to a Dr. Craig Wright, um, he was a researcher on a study recently and that as we age, people who had more muscle amounted a better immune response. Now, overall, losing muscle or what's called frailty as we get older is associated in general with just a higher all-cause mortality. So as we age, we really need to build muscle. Now, again, this is accomplished by weight-bearing activities. Does this mean you have to go to a gym and start bench-pressing heavy barbells? No, of course not. If you've been inactive or if you've noticed that your muscles have atrophied, you're going to want to ease in, especially as we're getting older. Starting too heavy can lead to injury, and that can actually set you way back. The overall goal should really be to very gradually build up your strength, build that muscle. If fear of injury is preventing you from doing any weight-bearing activities, consider hiring a professional to help you initially at least. Realizing that any weight-bearing activity will help, including bodyweight activities like yoga, walking is weight-bearing as well. Um, it's just not going to be weight-bearing on your upper body. Um, doing bodyweight exercises like squats, you know, doing light weights. You can even pick up things in the house to use as weights if you don't want to get, weight, um, you know, actual weights. You could use like cans and things like that. And even just doing mobility exercises are really good for getting the body into that um, building muscle phase. So just be consistent and gradually build up your strength over time. And in case you're thinking, no, Sarah, I'm too old to start weight training, listen to this. This is going to motivate you. There was a clinical trial with 100 frail, elderly nursing home residents in Boston. The average age was just over 87, almost 90. More than a third were actually over 90. Almost all used a cane, a walker, or a wheelchair. Half of them had arthritis, and many others had conditions like fractures, hypertension, pulmonary issues, cognitive impairment, or depression. They broke the the groups into an exercise group and a non-exercise group. The exercise group did three sets of resistant training of hip and knee muscles. They did this for three days per week for 10 weeks. And each time they could, the load was increased as tolerated. And sessions lasted about 45 minutes. By the end of the trial, the exercising group had significantly increased muscle strength and mobility. And four of the participants no longer used their walkers and were able to switch to a cane. So that's proof that it's never too late to begin. 
Um, there's a woman that I love to follow on Instagram. Her name's Train with Joan, and she started her like exercise program in her 70s and has totally transformed her life and her body. So I just want to encourage you, start today. It's never too late. Just remember, if you lose muscle, your metabolism is going to slow down. You'll be more prone to fractures and risk developing frailty in your older um, years. So let's do, that was a lot of information. Let's do a quick recap of those tips I just covered. First and foremost, Get your goal right. Focus on that body composition instead of weight. Get out the tape measure or trade in your regular scale for a body composition scale. Um, number the next tip: ditch the calorie counting and dieting, and follow that perfect rule, perfect metabolism rule of three, to get that blood sugar stable. Eat for blood sugar stability. You do that by making sure every time you eat, you're getting at least one of the following: healthy fat, fiber, or protein. Um, I've got some more detail on that and different sources of what of each one of those categories in that download that I've got for you below. Starting your day off, stable. Stabilize it with the lower carb breakfast. Stay off that sugar roller coaster. Focus on getting protein first thing, some healthy fat. Get that blood sugar stabilized. And that's going to affect your energy, your mood, everything all the way through to dinner. Sprinkle on that cinnamon. Make sure it's Ceylon and shoot for a half a teaspoon a day for therapeutic benefits. And get those walking shoes on. Take a short walk around the block after meals. Do this for, you know, three weeks and see what you notice. You might be digesting your food better. Your mood might be better. You might be feeling more energy. You might actually sleep better. And then the last tip is work on building muscle. Use it or lose it, friends. Muscle's an absolute key to living longer and better. Oh, and one last thing I wanted to mention, I mentioned it earlier, is the continuous glucose monitors, or CGM for short. It's one of the best tools for truly understanding and managing blood sugar. I, I recommend it to almost all of my clients. And I've personally worn the NutriSense one several times, and I always learn something about my metabolism. CGMs, you know, been around a long time. They've been critical life-saving tools for diabetics to make sure their blood sugars are staying in safe ranges. Um, but now these devices have kind of, you know, they're coming into the mainstream. They have value for really anyone that wants to understand how their body's processing carbohydrates. And you'd be amazed at how, you know, different foods can affect different people, dif you know, differently. Uh, the doctor that got me into this, a really cool guy, uh, Dr. Kurt Perkins out of Colorado Springs, he um, got me into it a few years ago, and he was posting his results. And I was really surprised to see my results to carbs were different. So just know that that's really a very cool, like, immediate way of knowing how you're processing carbohydrates, how your insulin sensitivity is. Um, you can see real time how, your, how high your blood sugar spikes after what you eat and drink. Some people might notice that stress affects their blood sugar. I am definitely one of those people. Stress is my nemesis. I'm going to be doing an episode on stress soon, so stay tuned for that. Um, but as you improve your insulin sensitivity, CGMs are, you know, a great tool for recognizing that as well. When you build muscle, your metabolism might actually be able to better handle carbohydrates again. This is what I call, you know, it's called metabolic flexibility. So as you improve your metabolism, you're actually improving how your body processes um, carbs. 
So I'll get, you know, I'll get into this topic more um, in some future episodes, but I just wanted to mention it as a really cool tool to be able to get that feedback. Um, if you are interested in trying a CGM, first ask your doctor if you've got borderline, you know, insulin or glu- fasting glucose numbers, they'll probably write you a prescription and then you can use your insurance or you can order the NutraSense one, is, which is the one that I've used. And I've got a link to that below, and you can use um, Sarah25 to save $25. Or it's either $25. Yeah, 25 bucks. So I know this is a lot of information. I've got links below in the show notes, and I also put together a free downloadable guide for you that also includes some recipes. It's, it's listed in the show notes below. So thank you so much for joining me today for the podcast. Let me know in the comments, you know, what what did you find most valuable? What questions do you still have? What topics are you interested in for future episodes? So stay tuned. I've got lots more great info coming your way. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. And just remember, every small positive change you make adds up to big changes in the long run. It's not a short distance race. This is, we're on a marathon. So this is your perfect metabolism podcast.